This episode of The Explainer is supported by daft.ie. Are you buying or selling a home? If it's for sale, it's on daft.ie, Ireland's number one property website. Welcome to the journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Laura Byrne, and this week we're picking out our best bits from 2023. Now, although I haven't been in the hot seat of The Explainer for the entire year, I have enjoyed talking to you every week for the past few months. It's a privilege really going through these stories every week and breaking them down for you. There is a lot going on, let's be honest. And here at The Explainer, we hope to at least make sense of the latest news for you all. Now, our team would like to thank you, our listeners, for your continued support along the way. We've done our best to bring you accurate and reliable news from both home and abroad during what's been, let's be honest, a turbulent year. And we hope to continue that work through 2024. For now, let's look back at 2023, the year when you could kind of say that the world went into somewhat of a spin. Climate change showed up in all its might with the hottest year on record. We've witnessed continued war in Ukraine and a fresh and painful opening of old wounds in the Middle East. At home, well, it's been a strange one too. We've had riots in Dublin, protests outside asylum hubs, an unexpected scandal at RTE and a visit from the US president. So a mixed bag for sure. Here, our podcast team has compiled a mix of episodes that struck a chord with us personally, so you'll hear other members of the team coming up shortly with theirs. For me, the episode that stood out this year was the one where I interviewed two Sudanese doctors, one who had just fled Khartoum with her two young children. Dr. Salafa Salama and Dr. Aya Mohammed both live and work in Ireland. Salafa and her two children had lived in Ireland for years and had just left Ireland for Khartoum for a holiday to see family when the fighting broke out. Here, Salafa describes the shock and terror of that experience. So we went uh, to, to Khartoum on the 4th of April, just trying to celebrate Ramadan and then celebrate Eid afterwards. Um, we were only there for 11 days before the war started. And the night of uh, 13 of April, I actually brought my two kids um, for a sleepover over to, to their cousin's house. And um, I was back home at 3 a.m. There was nothing. The streets were quiet. We weren't stopped by anyone in the, in the, in the way back. And I just slept for a few hours, woke up at 8 a.m. to find the work has broke. Um, I was separated from my two kids for five days because there was bombing and gunshots outside. It was terrible. It was a complete blackout of um, power. Uh, People were panicking. There was lack of food, lack of fuel, lack of everything. And I couldn't, like the the bridges from Khartoum to to Khartoum North, where, where we live, uh, were blocked by the uh, rapid support forces, so no one could, you know, reach. I couldn't reach my kids for five days, and I couldn't help but, in each and every minute, think what could happen to them, possibly, or what could happen to me. Um, and like, it wasn't safe at all where we live or where they were. Like, you know, it wasn't that far, but they were in the surrounding of the airport, so it wasn't a safe area as well. And um, a gunshot ended up piercing the the ceiling and landing on a bed just beside the head of one of the kids, like, you know, in the house, in the same room where my kids were were sleeping, really. So it was just terrible for me to think what what could possibly happen and what what is the worst case, case scenario in this situation. Hello, it's Nikki Ryan, senior producer of The Explainer. Firstly, thank you to all of our listeners who stuck with us for another year and will, of course, have plenty more topics to explain in 2024. 
Now, this year was a particularly heavy one in terms of news, but there were also some lighter items in the headlines worth exploring, and one of those was a little competition down in Kerry called the Rose of Tralee. We had our own Carl Kinsella and the Irish Independence' Kirsty Blake Knox break down the competition for us. In this clip, we hear about the winner, but also what their new responsibilities are. And I mean, we do have a new rose. Can Carl, tell us first who won. Why do you think they won? Yeah, so Roisin Wiley, uh, she's 27. She's from New York. She's the New York Rose. And she's, you know, born and bred New York. She's like a lot of them, a lot of the representatives from across the, you know, the various seas were, you know, Irish people who had moved to Australia. But Roisin Wiley is, she is American. Um, And she was saying that is interesting because it means that whenever she meets any new American person and she tells them that her name is Roisin, they're always, you know, that's because that's not a normal name over in the US. So she was saying she spent her entire life explaining that she is of Irish descent. And she says she she felt like she'd been kind of a secret ambassador for Ireland her whole life. But it, it's very interesting, like her job now, she's vice president of sales at some national retail, retail firm. And now she has to kind of rewrite the next 12 months of her life, which I think that's got to be so difficult to explain to your boss in some skyscraper in New York that like, oh, I'm the Rose of Tralee and I now have these duties. It's pretty random, isn't it? Because you wouldn't have so much of a global... It's it's like if you had to tell your boss that you were like now mayor of a small town in Ireland. And it's like, well... Look, I was about to take issue with that. Yeah, now in Tralee. Yeah, (laughs) but it is—it's such a funny. And I—it was my first question for her at the press conference afterwards. I was like, "What do the next twelve months look like now for you?" What do they? What she didn't seem to know really. I think she just was. I think she was a bit shell shocked, and I think she wasn't thinking about it yet. Uh, But she's, you know, like it must be so unusual now as someone who's probably, you know, quite a high earner, probably quite a high flyer in, you know, downtown Manhattan to now be like, I now have to go and maybe do, you know. Cut, cut ribbons at things in towns in Ireland, you know? Well, Kirsty, maybe that's the point. I mean, for someone like Roisin, who has seemingly a pretty decent career, is this a career advance for her? What does she have to do now for the next 12 months? Well, it's like she's a representative. So it's like, you know, kind of going to sporting events or if there's like Rose events around the world or it's like kind of like going and and being the face of the Rose of the Tralee for the, the year. Um, any of the women who have been Rose of Trudy for a year have all said it was an incredible opportunity because they got to do lots of charity work. They got to do lots of like kind of fundraising or doing kind of getting awareness of uh, the festival and and everything like that. So I haven't heard anyone come out of it and ever say, Jesus, that was such a burden. <laughs> I can't believe <laughs> I had so much to do. Like they all seem to say it was like this incredibly rewarding year um but i agree with carl it must be a difficult thing to explain like in ireland if you said i've been crowned the rose of Trudy, people would automatically know the reference point but if you're if you had never heard of it it might be a difficult <laughs> one to get your line manager to sign off and i guess it is so well established after so many years that they probably have it well set up for the person who does win you could gotta give them that you know? yeah yeah i suppose most likely i i was i did learn a little bit about the structure of how it all operates when i was down there and it's you know they have a ceo and i think they but they only have about five or six full-time employees and i was told by one of the workers there that it is 95 percent volunteers so i you know i found that very interesting because it is, it was very efficiently run. Like it runs like clockwork. You know, you're there, you're watching it all go down and, you know, the kind of the shuttles to and from the various locations and, you know, people being shepherded this way and that It all. It ran very smoothly. Um, but as far as like them having things well set up, say for example, for the next 12 months, of the, like having seen it, 
firsthand, I would say they're, you know, they've got very good people working on it, but I'm not sure how quite how much they could have a plan given that, it, you know, it is ultimately a very small, it's quite a small operation, you know. Daft.ie is the preferred site for anyone buying or selling a home in Ireland. Whether you're taking the first steps or planning your next move, make sure you're on daft.ie, the best place to buy or sell your home in Ireland. Hi, it's Sinead O'Carroll, your sometimes presenter and always full-time executive producer here at The Explainer. Firstly, I just want to thank you all for listening to us this year and contributing so that we could continue making episodes of The Explainer. Life is fast and the news is somehow even faster these days. With terrible conflicts happening across the world, opinion, hot takes and wrong takes fly around mainstream media, political circles, as well as social media and your WhatsApp channels. That's why The Explainer is one of my favourite things we do here at The Journal. It allows us to slow down for our listeners and give everyone the big picture. And my best of choice highlights that. In fact, The Explainer has recently been nominated for some awards, with this episode getting a nod in the prestigious Smurfit Business Journalism Awards. The judges there were impressed by the telling of the intertwining story of politics, business and golf. Indeed, the sport of golf was in the news more than ever as Saudi Arabia tried to get a slice of the action. Why do they want to and how do they do it? Before we get to the 42's Gav Cooney's answers on that, I do want to tell you I realise my sporting pick confirms a pattern in these best of episodes. But the business of sport is something that impacts us all, either as players, supporters or members and taxpayers of a society where sport is big business and means big power. So it can't be ignored by newsrooms. To keep doing this kind of wide ranging work, your contributions are invaluable. So if you'd like to continue to support us, please head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute. Now, back to Gav's answers. Now, looking at Live Golf, let's start really by explaining, I think, Gavin, who owns them, how they came into existence. Live Golf is, is owned by the Public Investment Fund, which is the sovereign wealth fund of Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has, for the last few years, expressed an interest in getting into golf. By getting into golf, they mean pumping their money into it, but also taking some element of control of the sport as well. They had floated a couple of breakaway ideas and this is what they ultimately settled on. So the Live Tour, L-I-V, that's they're the Roman numerals for 54, which refers to the number of holes played at a Live event. So traditionally, the PGA Tour is a 72-hole event. So across four days, golfers go out and play a round of 18 holes across the four days and then whoever uh, completes it uh, in the fewest amount of strokes goes on and wins it. Live promised to change the format a bit under this notion of growing the game and we need to attract a younger audience. So they played 54 holes. They did this thing called shotgun starts by which everyone is on the course at one time starting at a different hole. Uh, they also had a team element. Uh, there was a general, a little bit more bombast about their events. So now this is golfer talking about it. So it's not that bombastic, but you know, players are allowed playing shorts, which they're not allowed to do on the PGA Tour. This is kind of this is kind of youth culture and so golf. We're talking like rock and roll golf for a change. Is it, this, I mean, golf has such an old fashioned mm. sort of a, a name really up until yeah. now. And th- so this was this was the kind of disruptor on the scene. Uh, so that was the format obviously set up by the Saudi Arabians last year. Only set up last year. It was it was this week last year that they had their first event. And Gavin, was this in any way expected then? And I know, look, we have a fair idea, but what are the Saudis aiming for here? Yeah, I mean, the goal with the Saudis, initially they would say to to grow live golf um, and in, well, they'll say grow the game of golf around the world. 
I, I think maybe their ultimate strategic aims were were fulfilled uh, in merging with uh, the PGA Tour and having now a hugely influential role in all of global golf. I mean, Saudi Arabia uh, have recently invested in a lot of sport. You know, it's part of their Vision 2030 plan, they will say, as uh, they want to diversify their economy away from just oil. And one of the ways in which they're going to do it is by targeting sport. Uh, they've bought Newcastle United, uh, the football team of the Premier League. They've had massive boxing fights in Saudi Arabia. They've had a Formula, they have a Formula One race in Saudi Arabia and now in golf as well. So uh, they will say that they'll, uh, they'll involve themselves in these sports. It might just boost the tourism industry in Saudi Arabia as well if they want to market themselves as a golf destination in the future. Critics will say it's it's a sports washing element, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, but uh, in terms of their motivations in setting up live, that now looks like effectively a bluff or the, the cost of a seat at the table in deciding the future of golf, which I think is clarified this week. Well, in theory, no one would argue with the idea of flooding a sport with lots of money and Saudi Arabia is not short of any money. But why are critics calling this sports washing in particular? It's the scale of the investment in a, in a global sport and how, um, in terms of, you know, sports watching is the softening of one's image using the vehicle of international sport. Uh, and that's exactly what they're doing with with other investments in, in sport, but in particularly in golf. And there's also there's also a power element to it all. You know, golf is not the biggest sport in the world, but it does attract a uniquely powerful cohort of supporters. I mean, live events have been staged at courses owned by Donald Trump. Donald Trump loves golf. Donald Trump loved live, seemingly. Uh, so it's not beyond the realms of possibility now that, you know, Saudi Arabia will have a significant role in golf uh, in a couple of years' time. Donald Trump could easily be the next U.S. president. And then, you know, at the golf course, you've got pretty easy access to the U.S. president. I mean, so th- these, are the kind of, these are the kind of benefits that come uh, from, an, from investing in golf in, in particular. Hello, my name is Marish Okarul. I'm a news reporter at The Journal, and I got the opportunity this year to assist with the production and even produce a few episodes of The Explainer. The Explainer is a great podcast. It allows for experts to explain the facts of a story while having that story under a microscope. That is why it was such a pleasure to produce the episode with our very own news correspondent, Niall O'Connor. Niall sat with Laura to take a deep dive into a story he had written that week about what an Israeli ground offensive in Gaza might look like. Using the knowledge Niall had gained from the experts he spoke to, he was able to paint a picture of just how technical such an operation would be. You're not talking about fighting Hamas in a war zone. We're talking here about the IDF going into residential, as you say, highly populated urban areas. Now, how does that work? Well, this is this is the, I suppose, the Israeli military are probably world leaders in terms of uh, dealing with these uh, particular sort of operations. Uh, they have a long history of it, but I think you know you're you're looking at there was limited ground offensives in 2014, 2009. Now I spoke to Declan Pori, the former Irish Army officer and defence analyst, uh, and he has he took me through how tactically they they address this sort of work. So the Irish Army, uh, like every other army, trains their troops in this, and indeed the the Israelis are the same, and it's it's based around particular. Um, doctrines and protocols uh, about how to fight in built-up areas. Um, But to do that safely uh, for the troops that are going in there, there's an awful lot of effort made to make it safer. And that's been developed over the last 20 years. Um, And they have, you know, specific training um, facilities. They've built 
essentially what they call Little Gaza uh, at a place called uh, Zeelum. Uh, there's a, a military base there. Uh, and uh, that military base is essentially uh, a city, a mock-up of the city. And they use particular uh, tactics then to get through that city without coming under fire from snipers. And one of those tactics, for instance, is to blow holes in buildings and they don't move on the streets. They move through the buildings and that's called mouse holding. That's one of the tactics. Um, And also then if they do come to a strong point that hasn't been already bombed by an aircraft, engineers will blow up that building. Uh, and then move on. So that's the kind of fighting you're looking at. Uh, and, and it is clearly, you know, not alone uh, very, very dangerous for the soldiers involved because they don't know what's around the next corner, but also for any civilians that are left in the area. It's It, it reminds me of what we witnessed in Iraq, Afghanistan. Fallujah comes to mind. I know you mentioned that yourself in the coverage you've done for us. Uh, you mentioned also something called the Dahiya Doctrine. These are all very clinical military approaches, but again, in very built up urban areas. Yeah, the Dahiya Doctrine was invented around about 2006, although I'm sure there were versions of it before then. But 2006 was fairly critical because that of course was uh, the Israeli versus uh, Lebanese conflict with Hezbollah um, now Dahia uh, is a neighbourhood in Beirut where Hezbollah were based um, and to we'll say in their efforts to eradicate Hezbollah in, in Beirut and to diminish their ability to fight back the uh, Israeli defence forces came up with this, this doctrine now this doctrine is all about denying enemy combatants the use of civilian infrastructure. So that's why you're seeing uh, the Israelis targeting, we'll say, water supply, electrical supply. And their justification for this is that, yes, it's being used by the civilian population, but it's also being used by Hamas. Uh, and that's why they're they're targeting it. We can debate all day long about the, the ramifications for that from a, an international law perspective. But that's how the Israelis are operating and that's how they see uh, how they operate. This episode of The Explainer was supported by Daft.ie. With the largest number of properties for sale in Ireland and being the number one preferred site among buyers and sellers, Daft.ie is the best place to buy or sell your home. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a huge thank you to our senior producer Nikki Ryan and executive producer Sinead O'Carroll for their tireless work throughout the year and also a big thank you to Mirish O'Carroll as well. If you enjoyed this episode please consider leaving us a review and a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a really great way to make sure other people can discover it, listen to it and love it as well. And thanks again and we'll see you next time. <laughs>